Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I'm your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in indie film distribution. I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. Uh, As I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've come to the conclusion that we need more data, more transparency, more information about how the various distribution options that are out there have worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from the show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hey, folks, I got a good one for you today. On this episode, I'm talking with Calvin McCarthy of Seven Street Productions, who hails from just across the river here in Portland in Vancouver, Washington. Over the past decade, Calvin and his team have made six low-budget horror features, if my counting is correct, and still going strong. Calvin takes us through his filmmaking journey, starting out with his roots as an actor, then shifting to behind the camera with shorts and a horror anthology feature. A few films later, Calvin formed a relationship with Breaking Glass Pictures, a Philadelphia-based distributor who continues to put out Calvin's films to this day with mockbuster titles such as Conjuring the Beyond and his latest Insidious Inferno. Calvin and I discuss a number of topics relevant to filmmakers wrestling with distribution strategies today, including common pitfalls and what to look for when signing a favorable distribution deal, if there is such a thing. I know you're going to get a lot of good nuggets out of this one. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Calvin McCarthy. All right, Calvin, fellow Portlander, welcome to Just Screen It. How are you? Yes, um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually in Vancouver, Washington, so I'm okay. a Washingtonian. Okay, sorry. I did not mean to to clump you in with us Portlanders. That's not fair. I get yeah, it. Yeah, I, right. I, I kind of like being the outsider on the yeah, outskirts. Yeah, okay, no, totally totally cool. I apologize for that. But we're still, you know, we're neighbors. Can we call it, when we say that we're yeah. neighbors, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. We wave to each other over the river, whatever. Yeah, so maybe just starting out, if you want to just give us a little bit of your your background, like how you got into filmmaking and, you know, I know you have a bunch of films under your belt and we'll kind of get into talking about distribution and stuff, but I always like to just get a little bit of background on everybody before we go. So why don't we start from there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My name is Calvin McCarthy. I started actually as an actor when I was 16. I started doing theater, local theater, high school theater, and I got cast in a couple of films, a couple of feature films that were shot here in Portland, Oregon. Got an agent, went through, you know, that whole process and started working pretty consistently as an actor for a number of years. Still do here in Portland, just less uh-huh. than I used to. And really, I mean, my journey kind of just, I, I hit a point where I think especially here in Portland and in smaller markets, there's not enough work to really be sustainable monetarily. And there's a lot of projects that just don't get finished or they don't really go anywhere. And by that point, I was obviously, you know, I was out of high school. I was ready to do my continuing education somewhere. I planned on going to community college and ended up going to film school through Portland State University. And 
just got fascinated with the other side of the camera. I've always been a big storyteller and just sort of wanted to see where I could fit. I knew I wanted to write. I wanted to direct because I've worked obviously so close with other actors. Cinematography has always been a big love of mine. So really was kind of just like playing the whole gamut and eventually just started making my own films fairly early on just to see if I could do it for free. And eventually that led me to, you know, taking that next step and getting into film festivals. Then that eventually became, can I get a film, you know, a worldwide distribution deal, even for for nothing. And really that's sort of led me to now working with a number of throughout my, my career at this point, different distribution companies and producers acquiring funds either through pre-sales or, or obviously, you know, selling points to producers to get low budget horror films made that go right to the VOD market. Yeah. It's kind of like the new age drive-in market. I, I tend to think, or, or even like the VHS market where it's pretty, it's pretty easy to get, to have like this in and to maybe get a coalition of different funders or, um, you know, people who can supply, you know, different resources towards a film. And I've just been writing that that wave ever since. The last three years, it's really picked up. And um, we're actually going into another film this March. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Okay. So, yeah, we'll get to all of that. I just want to rewind a little bit and talk maybe a little bit more about the kind of the origin of like, you know, so, so when you kind of shifted to wanting to be behind the camera and wanting to direct that kind of thing, did you start out with shorts or did you kind of just jump right into doing features? It was a little bit of both. Actually, the first two projects that I decided to make were anthology films. So it was, it was format of making a short and just ahead of time, knowing what that wraparound story might be, how I could connect these but it does seem to be it's it's easier on everybody to make a short obviously it's easy to get a good actor willing to commit two or three days for maybe free rather than trying to say you know we're going to film saturday sundays for you know 3 months because i don't have any money yeah, <laughs> you know to yeah. take off yeah so there's a little bit of yeah 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 that's and i think i mean the anthology route is kind of kind of a good way to go i think because of that is sort of you don't have to take on a full you know one project you know i don't know how to describe it but you know you can kind of divide it up into little pieces that are a little bit easier and don't require all the same actors don't require all the same crew necessarily all that kind of stuff yeah and i think anthologies especially for horror films are really fun and it's like the one subgenre that will accept an anthology. If you have a good wraparound story, you know, people will, will excuse it. So it just kind of seemed like a nice cheat code to start off making features still. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when you're kind of looking into, into doing this or kind of jumping into doing it, are you thinking about distribution at that point? Like early on when you were just starting out, were you thinking towards that? Or were you just kind of like, I'm going to just make this and see what happens kind of thing? Definitely. Yeah, I was yeah. definitely thinking about it. But the first, uh, first and foremost, I just wanted to see if, if I could make a movie, you know, yeah. if I could film something and edit it and mix the audio and get the, the music tracks in there. But I've always wanted to get, you know, warts and all. I've always wanted to get 
my projects out there. So I know that that in and of itself is almost worth any amount of money I could give an actor like at this mm-hmm. level. You yeah. know, it's just getting it out there for something for an actor to point to is really big for them. So that was a big motivating factor, even very early on was just figuring out how how does distribution work? Do you really need a sales agent? You know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. And what what kind of year are we talking about? Can you can you like put it because distribution has changed so much in the last like two decades or whatever. Like where where are we time wise when you're kind of working on your very first stuff? Uh, it's funny. I can actually you're looking it up, up on exact- the computer. <laughs> it's hard to keep track. I want to say 2015, okay. 2016. Yeah. yeah so yeah, I think that's kind of right around the golden era of like the prime video direct, you know, when you could actually get a movie on Amazon prime and get a kind of a reasonable return for it. And I bungled that totally. I mean, I, I definitely feel to the game early on, you know, I was kind of willing to just give it to the first place that said yes, mm. very early on. Yeah. As, as many, I think, first-time filmmakers are. So, you, yeah. you know, you're not alone in that. <laughs> a couple of those early ones are owned by the Kings of Horror, which is they mostly do stuff on YouTube. So it's, it was mostly a YouTube release mm. and they have, you know, you know, millions of followers. And I think that's how they get people in on it and kind of give you that 50-50 split on your film. But they don't they don't plug it super hard. They just have a, a big YouTube channel that people go to. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that that like the idea of the distributor that has a big catalog that will kind of take, you know, n- not saying that your film falls into this category necessarily, but, but you know, take anything and, you know, they yeah. sort of offer filmmakers, you know, hey, we're a distributor. We'll give you distribution. But then they just kind of put it out there. They don't market it. They don't promote it. You're not really getting that much out of it and you're giving up rights to it, you know, to do that. So I think that's a lesson that I, a lot of filmmakers learn along the way. Yeah, definitely. And as you go along in, in the more distribution companies you encounter and do business with, you, you get better at immediately identifying the ones who will just take anything. And then the ones who actually care about this, they're going to put some publicity into its release. They're going to you know, try to do all these different things with it. Yeah. I think it's, it's the case for everyone, a filmmaker or just a young person in general, you look back in the beginning stages and you go, Oh gosh, I wish, I wish somebody would have known or would have been able to pull me aside and say yeah. a little bit more time, email a couple of different more people. Yeah. Was that, so this was, you're, you're talking about maybe your first kind of, it was an anthology feature. What, what was the title? Yeah, it was two. There's two of them. Two of them. Okay. Very, very rough films. First one is called three flies in a widow's web. Mm-hmm. And the second is called bedtime scaries oh okay so i'm cool. sure you can tell what those wraparound stories are like yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah very very rough i mean it's really it, it looks like a movie that's made by you know film school students mm-hmm. with a camera just trying to figure it out trying to piece everything together but yeah wasn't gonna let that stop us from putting it out there i think that's a big thing too even if you even if what you make is real rough you ought, get, you ought to get it out there. You For know? sure. It's yeah. no sitting around on, on your hard drive. Yeah. I mean, I'm a great believer in, in sort of the concept of the flawed gem, right? You know, so just because something's rough 
feel student filmish, that kind of thing, doesn't mean it can't have little creative flares, little things that are interesting, little pieces of your own voice that you're kind of letting out there. And I think, you know, there are certain audiences, some audiences aren't forgiving of that, but there are certain audiences that definitely are. I'm one of them. I look for the little, the little pieces of like creativity, the little pieces of innovation, that kind of thing in movies that I watch, even if the movies themselves aren't that good or the you know, production values are low or something like that. I'm always looking for, you know, what do you bring to the table in, in terms of your own vision, your own original? You know, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it helps filmmakers to kind of recognize that filmmaking is really fucking hard and you got to spend, you know, time, you got to put in time to get good at it. You can't just make your first film and be good at it, you know. And so you should embrace, I think, the notion of the rough first film, you know, or, or a few first films, you know, the, the notion of these, these films are not going to be perfect by any stretch. You're not, they're not even going to fit your vision perfectly. They're going to just be you know, what they are and just love that and move on and learn from it. You know, I think. Yeah. I, I, I always tell people that it's a miracle that any movie ever gets made. Yep. It is. Yep. It's so hard. And, you know, at this point you can get seasoned. You can feel like you have something down to a science and have you and your crew really dialed in. But, you know, if you're working with, you know, a 30 to $40,000 to make, a feature film, you're just limited. You're limited on amount of days. Yeah. You know, you name it, you know, sleep, what you, what people can, you know, how much can people eat everything? It all factors in and, you know, they're only ever going to get so good at that, at that level. You know, what, what you have to do is just sort of fail forward, really, you know, and just that term fail forward. Yeah. Yeah. You you just got to make sure that it's as good as you can do at that time. And the next time it's just got to be a little bit better. But yeah. the, the only rule here is the films can't get worse. They, they have to get a little bit better each time. And I think that it's totally worth it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you're serious and you're, you know, introspective and, and, and taking a serious, hard, critical look, look at your work, that's inevitable. You'll get better because you'll be constantly kind of engaged in that process of how can I improve this? How can I be better, you know, next time? It's almost, you'd have to work to not get better, I think, as you go along. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You kind of have to go into it being realistic, I think, you know, and, and knowing what your limitations are and not, not assuming that, you know, not, not looking at, at, this film that you're doing as, you know, it's, it's either going to cause me to blow up and get noticed by a big studio. And if, if not, it's a monumental failure. I think that that sometimes holds people back instead of just saying, Hey, you know, look, you got to just look at this project in the moment and you got to do the best that you can and not, not, not add any more pressure onto this little, you know, $30,000 $30,000 movie. It's already got enough pressure. It's already very fragile. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, not to get too bogged down in, in the early stuff. So once you've kind of made these two anthology films, you've gotten them out there, maybe not the most satisfying distribution experience in the world. What next? What what, what was your kind of mentality going into the next film? Because obviously you've made a bunch more since then. So nothing was stopping you yeah. from making your next one there. We just kind of trudged on. Yeah. With no money, with no money, no way to pay anybody, just kind of kept getting equipment at the time. You know, I had, until recently, I had always uh, had a day job. I'd worked in sales. So for the next two, two or three films, I mean, those were made on the weekends for about a month, you Mm -hmm. know, and we would just show up and it was just, 
somebody, you know, someone on crew, some, some friend or some family member's house that would let us shoot there. And we would just really try to design these scripts to be as, you know, contained and watered down as possible and trying to make something that at least looked better than some of the other junk that was out there that was made for around the same price, right? You look at them and you go, okay, I can do that or I can make it sound better than that. And that was really, you know, the the big motivating factor for the next for the next three films and, you know, getting distribution for those as well, you know, trying to see if, you know, we had just like these little goals in mind, you know, we wanted a DVD release. So then, you know, we got the list of distributors who would do a DVD release. And, you know, it was, there was like a, a total innocence to it at first, you know, because you just, you don't know what you don't know. You kind of just make up your own little milestones and, you know, looking back, obviously nowadays, you know, a DVD release, it doesn't do anything. You know, yeah. we, we shouldn't have been concerned about that. But I think what it did was it, it forced us out of our comfort zone, forced us to talk to people and get on the phone. But yeah, those next few films, it was, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. We were just kind of paying everyone with, with food, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, good for you for keeping at it, you know, under, under those circumstances. And it sounds like you say next few films. So, you know, and I know kind of just looking from your, at your filmography and talking to you a little bit, like you've just been kept at going, you've, you've kept at it like year after year after year, it seems. And I think for a lot of filmmakers, it's a lot harder for them to do that, or they just don't, you know, they just don't, they can't, I, I don't know what it is, but you, it sounds like you just kept going and, and kept experimenting and, and kept, you know, honing your craft as you went along. So. Yeah. You also start to bring people into the fold, which is, I mean, really why we ended up where we are now, because, you know, you'd work on a film and you'd basically beg somebody to come work on it for a couple of days and it would just lead to different connections and opened it up a lot of different opportunities. I think the last one that we did that was like a free movie was a movie we call we originally titled Don't Sleep. Mm-hmm. But that's that's distri- distribution companies really like to retitle films and I think more more power to you. Like they their marketing team knows better than I do. And and I'm not very precious about about stuff like that. Right. And yeah, luckily the sound guy who actually worked on on that movie that was later called Amityville Poltergeist, he had some money and he was going to open up a studio, a small sound studio, independent studio in in Portland. And I think just from being on the set and seeing our resilience and kind of ability to cut out certain bloat that that you see a lot in in different production companies, he sort of invited me to help him start this studio. And that really began that, you know, upward ascension of approaching this, having and being forced to approach it more like a business because now somebody else's company, somebody else's space is, is at stake here. So we have to really start being uh, really smart about how we're going to approach uh, fundraising for a movie and the type of the, the, the quality of the film. Yeah. And yeah. And that was, that was the big start to more serious. Right. 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 So, I mean, were you, at this point, like starting to think about actually, because I think your your previous films had been just kind of 
getting people to work for free, like begging on basically made on on no money. Are you now starting to think fundraising? Like I'm gonna, how are we gonna actually get money to pay people a little bit? That kind of thing. Are you in that mode yet? Yeah, definitely. You know, I I sort of skipped over a part. I I worked with a couple of other distribution companies, um, you know, and, and like Wild Eye and and companies like that that are, are just fine. And what I had realized with these films is that you know you can also just sell them for a buyout from a company mm-hmm. instead of taking a fifty fifty deal. And these movies were made for nothing, and they didn't offer me much of anything, but they were able to offer me a little bit of money. So I was kind of seeing a little bit of money from past work mm-hmm. kind of come in, and that's that's sort of what started the the bigger film at the the studio. Video is the future. It's it's no longer there, but you know I had a little bit of money. The guy who had the the studio had a little bit of money and we had made a short film just kind of like doing a proof of concept as soon as the studio opened that i wrote and directed and yeah immediately we said we want to make a horror comedy and that we would raise the rest from indiegogo and just sort of you know try to create something to once again take to some of these distribution companies and either get a buyout to try and get the money back or you know it would get our foot in the door with some different companies yeah uh, because we would have an actual budget to spend on this film right and and these budgets are what kind of in the tens of thousands that we're talking about now or by this point you know we kind of went from free or just you know me flipping the bill for everything probably like $2,000 for those early films to, yeah, I think Mutant Vampires from the planet Neptune, which is a, com- a horror comedy, obviously. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but I think that was $15,000. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it sounds like now you're kind of in a mode of like, kind of kind of kind of exploring what dis- distribution options you have, what distributor options you have. Are you considering like entering films into festivals at all at this point, or are you not going that route? Yeah, you know, we would do that. We still do that with certain festivals, mm-hmm. like the Crypticon Horror Festivals or the Portland Horror Festivals. But even early on, just even from being an actor, what I realized was that the festival circuit, it, it's just, I, it doesn't seem to be doing, I think, what a lot of indie filmmakers, maybe inexperienced filmmakers think it's gonna do for them mm-hmm. and we had had some experience with that you know there are a lot of fees for them and it didn't seem like anyone you know there there weren't sales agents walking around these film festivals you know it was just local college kids or other people who made a movie so yeah early on we we kind of pivoted away from doing film festivals just or, or making that our main focus just because we weren't really sure what it was going to do for us or it, it just didn't have any immediate return on it I still like doing them obviously but yeah it was never a main focus it was more about trying to get it out there and especially you know the genre that that we work in there's there's just more people willing to take a chance on a low budget horror film that they've never heard of yeah so we just figured you know it, it was going to be much more worth it to just get somehow get it out into the world. Yeah, totally makes sense. And, and uh, you know, I think that like it's kind of acknowledged. I think uh, by a lot of filmmakers that I've heard and talked to that you know 
only the biggest film festivals really lead to kind of, you know, big distribution deals, that kind of thing. And even then, you know, getting into Sundance is no guarantee, you know, getting into South by is no guarantee by any stretch. To get them into a, a film festival. And, and yeah, it, and I'm a pretty impatient person. Too, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to wait around two years to see what it was going to do in a festival circuit, especially those early films. Just didn't have a lot of faith do much. Yeah, totally. So when you're when you're looking at the at the kind of talking directly to distribu- distributor route, like how do you go about that? Like what's the process that you go, you you know, kind of you're looking them up on the internet, I don't know, you're looking for like similar titles that have played. Like how are you going about finding a match for your films at this point? Yeah, I mean, luckily my background is in sales and business development and b2b sales working with other businesses so i have and and i tell whenever anyone asks me this question i say honestly go go work a sales job for a little while then call people and just get used to calling front desks or figuring out how to get the ceo's number and just call them yeah and have and, and go through a few instances of them being annoyed with you and just kind of call everybody and try to build up a little bit of a rapport with people and, you know, be honest. I think especially with companies that deal with worldwide distribution, they work with foreign titles that are millions of dollars trying to get U.S. distribution. And they deal with just films that are much bigger than you. So I think if you go in there and try to, you know, lay on your resume or something, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll immediately tune you out. But I really do think that, you know, if you if you just reach out to people and you just try to get them on the phone and and be yourself and tell the truth on your abilities and and the type of movie you can make. And like you said, watch some of the stuff in their catalog and say, you know, I can do stuff like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, always just sort of be willing to to make a deal. You know, there's there've been a couple of films that we've made for distribution companies where we kind of ask what what are you looking for you know and we'll we will try to come up with something that we want to make but we'll try to come up with something based on what you're looking for right now or what you're not looking for you know we can kind of stay away from from that and you know i think that having it's it's true with everything in life just having a good personal relationship with the people you're working with will end up it'll just end up voting well for you. And it's easier to get people then on your side that want to see you succeed. You yeah, know? totally. And and I just want to kind of comment on something that I'm hearing that like you're, it seems like your, your approach is more to approach distributors before making the films, not after making the films. Like you're looking to partner with people beforehand. Uh, and I guess it's, you know, kind of goes hand in hand with looking for funding as well, right? You're, you're So you're not kind of taking that avenue of, oh, I'm just going to make it. I'm going to find, you know, it, you know, either fund it myself or find private investors, make it and then see what happens to it. You're taking a much more kind of strategic approach of like trying to talk to distributors before you make your films. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. And even if they don't have any funding or resources that they're willing to give you, you at least know what those companies are looking for. Yeah. You know, like when that Winnie the Pooh blood and honey movie came out. Yeah. Right? That's what everybody wanted. Everybody wanted something. Everyone said, you know, if, if we can find something that's a popular 
name or something that's that's in the public domain, that would be great, right? And a few years before that, it was disaster movies, right? And and sometimes you hear stuff where you go, okay, well, I can't, you know, I can't make a an earthquake movie, <laughs> but at least you get an idea of what the market is sort of looking like. But we only did that after we, you know, we we obviously made our early films out contacting anybody and then we sort of would just shop them around and even even when you send it to a distributor and you talk to them you bug them and, and they say yeah we're, we're just not interested in this movie at least you kind of get in the door with them you kind of can say well what do you like about it <laughs> you know what would i have to do to change this if, if if we threw the amityville title on it would you take it you know <laughs> yeah they, they kind of start they start opening up, you know, and, and I don't know. I mean, maybe it doesn't, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I do think that a big part of it ended up being there's, there's a personality behind a project. And I feel like, yeah, you start having a personal relationship and they kind of start rooting for you in a sense, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a long-term game, right? So if, 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 if you kind of miss the boat on one film, you, you, at least you now have that person sort of in your virtual Rolodex to go back to the next film. And maybe that film is, you know, maybe the timing's better. Maybe the film is a better match. You know, you never know, but as when you have people that you have contact with, I think you're inevitably going to get them to be in your court a little bit. As long as you're not tipping, you know, as long as you're not annoying them. And that's obviously, that's a careful balance, you know, but if you're maintaining a good, honest relationship with them, that seems like it doesn't hurt to get rejected if you can continue that relationship to another point in the future where you might not get rejected, you know, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. And that's what's led to, now we have a relationship with Breaking Glass Pictures, which is a distribution company out of Philadelphia. And, you know, we're, we're all so close now. And, you know, it's not always the case that they can provide uh, the funding or all the funding, but they, you know, at, at this point, you know, we've all just genuinely become friends. You can tell that they are rooting for me. You know, they want to succeed and they want to, you know, at the very least, try to point me towards maybe some other people, some other contacts, because, you know, that, that being that kind of like, uh, transparency and between both sides and, and understanding between both sides and, and not immediately jumping to, okay, I'm, I'm getting ripped off here. Or I'm getting abandoned here or anything like that just kind of leads to, it usually just leads to good things. I think it's really easy to, I don't know, as an artist, it, it is really easy to feel like a victim. <laughs> and I, I still do at times, but you know, every it's, it's a business, right? And everybody, and everybody's human. And I think that they they do genuinely want you to, to succeed. So yeah, um, just kind of with a level of understanding of who they are and who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you take me back kind of the, to the early days then of, of your relationship with Breaking Glass? What was sort of the first film that you did with them? Yeah, you know, I had I had spoken to them a bunch throughout, throughout. And you know, the, the CEO there, Rich, he would just, he, he would talk to me a lot and kind of just built up a friendship. And then when we did Mutant Vampires, uh, we raised the money for that. But from the beginning, I was sending him the script or I would say, hey, these are the people I'm going to cast. You know, what do you, what do you think about that? And, 
you know, of course, early on, he was like, well, you know, I mean, you can make whatever movie you want, dude, you know, it's yeah. like not committing or anything, but I was just kind of saying, no, I, you know, value your opinion, you know, and I talk to you a bit and you're very, you, you're, you know, more than I do. And I think that I'm not, it, it's so weird, especially these last three and a half years went by so quick. I'm not exactly sure why he picked up the film and then helped get that next film at least partially funded. But yeah, some, something happened once once the film was finished and I had written a script for him. Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you tell said, me which film that was? What's what, the title uh, of that one? A Haunting in Ravenwood. A Haunting in Ravenwood. OK, just, I'm just trying to put it because you got a long list of films. I'm trying to put it all in context. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, right after Mutant Vampires was a haunting in Ravenwood and, I, and it was very low budget and I didn't really ask for for much from them and much in total. I think it was another like $15,000 thing. Mm-hmm. And just through talking to him about it and saying, hey, you know, I think I have some other investors that might be interested because our last film had gone well. You know, how would you feel about uh, ponying up some money for, you know, distribution rights or you know, and, and within those contracts, you can kind of give me a deadline when you want the movie to be done and we'll just do it. And, and they took a chance on us. I'm not exactly sure why. They also picked up Mutant Vampires as part of that deal. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, a toss in with them. And gosh, I don't know. I, I think that they did just well enough for them at a super low cost. And I think that they, you know, they, they didn't have the biggest horror catalog. I think that that was like a subgenre that was kind of actually lacking the most with them. They uh, do a lot of foreign films. They do a lot of a lot of LGBT films, and I think they were maybe trying to diversify a little bit. And I must have just represented somebody who could do something quick and cheap for them, and wouldn't do it cynically. Wasn't just going to like throw movies together, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that's exactly what I was talking about a few minutes ago, which is that you kind of formed that relationship over time. And it was it was the solidity of that relationship. It was kind of knowing you and knowing who you were and how your mind work. And, you know, that you were kind of a trustworthy person to put a little bit of of muscle behind, you know, and and that's that's just so important, I think, to kind of develop those relationships. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's great. It's a great story. Can I ask, were there any like kind of at, at that point, were there any kind of red flags or was there, was there anything that was sort of like, oh, maybe I don't want to partner with these guys because of this and that and that. I'm just kind of curious. And if you don't want to comment about that, that's totally cool, too. But, oh, you know, the red flags that you that I would get from other ones, from other distribution companies, just sort of a, a lack of communication. Mm, yeah, big one. That was always a big red flag. And, you know, at, at Breaking Glass, I mean, it was the it was the CEO and the CFO who were always on the phone with me and 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 having really sort of personal conversations, you know, really friendly conversations. So, no, I, you know, I never had I never had there were definitely never any red flags. I think very early on, I was worried about you know, some of the, like the deadlines, I was, I was wondering, you know, okay, what, what happens if I, if I don't do that? If, if, if I screw up somewhere along the way, this isn't going to be good for me. 
But no, I mean, that was more just in maybe a feeling of early on, maybe getting myself into the deep end and not, not knowing if I could really <laughs> swim that well, but no, I, and, and they've always been really understanding. I mean, they've been really, really great to work with and, you know, they sort of have different deals, obviously with different filmmakers and yeah. So I, I think, I think a lot of those companies, I, I don't think they're the outlier either. I think a lot of them, if you, if you find a way to get in there and they end up liking you, there, there are a lot of filmmakers that they'll give an opportunity like that for. So yeah, can you? So how many films have you done with them now? Kind of, you know, I assume that like that that the first film, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the title now. But that that first film, you finished the film, they distributed it. That resulted in another film that they kind of that that th- they signed you with. Is that correct? And that kind of developed into an ongoing working relationship as you made more films. Yeah. I mean, right away, I, I kind of thought, okay, you know, I'm here. They, they have provided a little bit of the funding. I don't want to wait too long for this. Yeah. So immediately, immediately after Post was done on A Haunting in Ravenwood, I started writing a script a little bit bigger and went back to them and immediately kind of said, you know, I don't really have the best title for this. Maybe we can kind of come up with you know, those, those mockbuster titles, because the mockbuster titles work well for all the other companies that are doing horror films. You know, this script that I wrote called Night Terrors, I think. I was like, let's, you know, let's talk to the marketing team. What do they think we could do? And, right, most titles you can't copyright, right? You can't copyright the word con. Unfortunately for Blumhouse. Yeah, I'm sorry, the word what? You dropped out a little bit there. You can't copyright the word... Uh, conjuring. Conjuring, right, yeah. Now, I was pretty sure that's what you said because I kind of read, read it off your lips and I knew that that's what you were talking about, but I wanted to make sure that listeners could hear it. We tossed around a couple of ideas, eventually settled on Conjuring the Beyond, and uh, it gave us you know, a, a, a bigger budget. You know, They provided us with a bigger budget. We were working with a great effects and prop house that also helped to produce the film out of Seattle Raptor Effect Studios. And together, they really kind of facilitated the, you know, the, the funding and, and just the materials we needed for the movie. And we found this great old school house in Mineral, Washington, that we could rent as the location. And we went out there and made the movie still for very cheap. But with the location, it ended up looking bigger. It just looked like a bigger movie. That coupled with that mockbuster title ended up going, you know, semi-viral for Breaking Glass. And that's really, I think, what solidified our relationship is that, you know, this kind of, from from start to finish, they were involved with kind of building this kind of mockbuster horror movie based on a script that I wrote, or, or at least kind of coming up with the title. And from start to finish, we were all really involved with it. And then it paid off really well for them, especially. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what I think really gained the trust between us. Yeah. Did that so in terms of actual financial returns, was that a kind of a, a big hit for you personally or for, you know, investors? I, you know, I don't you know, you don't need to comment on specific numbers or not if you don't want to, but I'm just kind of curious like if that viral well, spread is, came with financial remuneration, you know. <laughs> for breaking glass it did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ponying up money 
nearly in, in as like a pre-sale process, you know, kind of entitles them to, you know, most of, of everything, okay. you know, so, right. Right. which ended up, I mean, as it, you know, these years later, and, and we're still going to make, we're still making movies for them paid off. Definitely. It's like totally worth the trade to, you know, just because now you can, we can kind of say, Hey, look, you know, this, this worked out so well, let's try and recreate this formula, you know, right. Right. As much as we can. And, you know, they've been around and they've, you know, you know, to, to their credit, they've put out, you know, a lot of, a lot of money for us, you know, which is something that, you know, you got to understand is scary for anybody to do is scary for any financer to do, you know, for me to go to somebody and say, Hey, you know, lend me 10,000 bucks to put towards this movie. You know, it's a lot of money, you know, or especially for them, we're talking about like tens of thousands, even though that they're a big company, it's still quite a bit of money that, that they see coming out of their bank account for sure, you yeah. know, and it plops into my business account and they just assume that, you know, I'm going to make the movie for it or that, you know, I'm not going to pay my rent with it, you know? Right. Right. Do they have any like creative oversight uh, into these projects or do they kind of just let you do what you want to do and come back with the finished result? They, they totally let us just kind of, wow. we're just to our own devices. When it comes to the title, yeah. they really like to kind of retitle things. They will have an opinion as far as, you know, some, some mundane things, sometimes casting, they like to see who's, who's in the movie and sometimes like where the money is spent on, on certain cast members, I suppose, because we'll often try to get like people who have a little bit of a name mm-hmm. and they'll be a little bit picky about that. You know, if it's going to cost, you know, three grand to get this person, they go, eh, no, not that person. But generally, you know, they, they like the scripts that that we write and yeah, they, they have very little want to be involved in the creative process. Sometimes in post they have, they, you know, will, will kind of say, no, not this, go back. You know, the, the audience here is not good, but generally they kind of just leave us to our own devices, you know, uh, which is, uh, it's gotta be even scarier for them, especially, you know, we're on the phone every day up until getting the money. And then it's pre-production and production and we're just gone. So, I mean, they don't yeah. hear from us. It's like they, they deposit money into the account and then we're, we're just gone, you know? That's amazing. Well, I mean, I think that's a, that's a testament to the trust that you've built with them and the trust that they place in you to be able to do that. You know, they don't, sounds like they don't even ask for like production reports or anything. They just like, they, they put the a money in your, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they also have my number. So, I mean, they'll, yeah. Yeah. they'll, and, you know, I'm usually sending them the dailies and stuff just to say, oh, look at this, how cool this is. But, you know, it's not, it's not to, you know, the acquisitions department or anything like that. It's, it's kind of straight to the, the higher ups who, you know, are, I don't think are usually very involved in that aspect. I don't know. Maybe it's a cool thing too, you know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Any in, in any case, it's a super cool arrangement for you as a filmmaker. Are you like from the funding that they put into these films, are you personally able to actually collect a salary for yourself from that? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in regards to payment, I mean, we all as a group crew of about, you know, six or seven people, it's pretty small. Yep. But we all just kind of get paid the same. You know, we don't we don't make very much at all. 
And it's really been about, you know, just building up our own catalog because the more movies we make, you know, the more of like this little maybe kind of cult following we, we sort of get from each little movie. So you can feel it bubbling up and, you know, it's, it's not sustainable for, for the future, you know, for us to keep doing this, but you can kind of feel something growing beneath the surface and it just feels like it's leading to a good place yeah. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. Or you Right. Like what pilots say is, you know, if there's something wrong with the plane, you just fly it to the crash site, you know, <laughs> basically wow. just, just keep the plane in the air and see, see yeah. if you can, how you can get, or, or if you can land it. So, so, I mean, that's sort of where we are on our journey, which is scary, but it's fun. You know? Yeah. It sounds it for sure. And so how many movies now have been done with breaking glass? This will be six. I think. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You've really been just, just like once a year, it sounds like, cause you know, I go back to yeah. like, you know, 2016, you were talking about this before you hooked up with them. It's only been eight years since then you've made six movies at least. So that's wow. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. They've been more frequent as of, as of late, just because the, you've right. The conjuring the beyond movie had done well. Uh, we followed that up with a slasher movie that also did pretty well. And, you know, it's just like with anything, if you're, if you're performing and if, if you kind of feel hot, they'll, you know, it's like everybody kind of wants to keep that going. The minute you slip a little bit, you know, it, it might go back down. So it just yeah. kind of ebbs. And- has the, has the viral success of Conjuring the Beyond ever been matched in any of the other films? No, no, no. not even okay. close. Not even close. Okay. Second, the, the movie that's in second place has done like half the business. Yeah. Yeah. Are they, do you think that breaking glass is still making money off of these films though? Are they still turning a profit? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you know, we follow the American film market and they're there every year. And I know that conjuring the beyond, even though it's been out for a while, I think that they had recently sold it to a company in Brazil that does like the South American market. Like they, they put films on like the South American Netflix and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the movie went there, but so I think that they're, you know, they're kind of constantly shuffling the deck with um, all of their movies, you know, not just ours, yeah. but yeah. I think that, you know, you'll, I'll see like a, you, even on IMDb, you can see an article or a report from the American film market. And it usually involves, right. If it's one of my movies, it usually involves that movie. That seems to be the one that still is doing hmm. uh, the most business. Yeah. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, uh, from the distributor's perspective, that's that's what they're always after. Right. They're always kind of willing to put a little bit of money into one film after another in the hopes that one of them will go big. And it's even even if they're not making money on those little films, if they stick with it long enough, because that's how films are. They just have this like, you know, all of a sudden some random film will just break through and make 10 times what any other film did in the same class, you know. And that's maybe what they're kind of hoping for and and investing in, uh, you know, as they continue to, you know, help you out with making these films and distributing these films. Yeah. And that seems to be the case with with all the the distributors, right? The big one, and just because we've been sort of plugged in with the the community as far as uh, these sort of distribution companies that are kind of all around at the same level, right? The Winnie the Pooh movie came out and just... It just killed, man. It just, it made millions, 
for for a movie I think that was made for sixty thousand dollars, seventy thousand dollars, and just just destroyed the market. And you know, I'm those guys. I don't I don't know who those guys are. I need to meet them, but they they set themselves up really well. You know, just just that one movie alone. I think that they'll be able to. You know, they'll they'll have some people that are willing to give them. You know much more money for whatever they want to do next. I'm sure of it. Yep. Yep. For sure. And that's, you know, that I think that's, I, I, I guess just taking a step back, like I think that, that your entire career so far has been a, a very kind of wise strategic buildup of, of what you're doing, kind of, kind of learning from each film, keep making films, keep, just keep pushing things out there and keep and see what works. And it seems like that will eventually, if you just kind of keep at it, eventually that will lead to some kind of breakthrough success, you know, and then, you know, don't have your eyes fixed on that either. I don't think like that's part of the, you know, enjoy the, enjoy the ride as well on that. And, and if I think yeah. if that never materializes, you don't want to feel like the whole time that you were doing all of these other films was wasted either. But it's, you know, I think that's a good lesson for filmmakers to learn is just to keep going and have a view of the long game and not just think of every film as like the film that's going to break out. And if it doesn't, it's a big failure, that kind of thing. And it sounds like you've really taken that to heart, you know. I've been lucky enough that, you know, they they let me sort of do what I want. So every film is the film that I want to make. It's it's certainly has, you know the parameters are set of this box that I'm, I'm inside of that I have to make work. But yeah, you know, free film has been a film that I've legitimately wanted to make. And there, there's also a pride in being a working artist, you know? Yeah. I think that it, there's, there, there is a lot of, I think that there are a lot of people who, right. Wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily value that as much, you know? Right. It's like, oh, I, I sold out and now I'm a, you know, designer for Columbia Sportswear and I'm not really working within my field. But there is something to, to be said about you being a working artist and mm-hmm. using your skills at a team. It just not being about you being an, an, an artiste, you yeah. know. So, yeah, I think that I think it's also just it's just about being realistic about, you know, what you can do and and who you want to be as an artist, you know, I want to be a horror filmmaker. I want to have a cult following. I want weird kids like me to, you know, go to their high school. And when everyone says, what's your favorite movie, you know, and you say, my favorite movie is Dawn of the Dead. And everyone says, what, what? you know, what are you talking about? Everybody's favorite movie was, you know, Barbie. E. It came out last time. Y'all okay. saw it. You know? Right. Right. Uh, you know, so yeah, I I think that that's more so what I'm looking for anyway. So I I guess that this path sort of sort of aligns with with my goals or aspirations just fine, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds awesome. And I know that you're now working. You're in pre-production for your next film. Is there a title for that one? Remind me. Is it something they titled? Something you're titling that they're going to retitle? Like, what's the where's the title yeah. thing stand at right now with that one? It's it's fun because I. First off, about me, you know, yeah. I, I I'm a big fan of Italian horror films from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, definitely shows. <laughs> big, big fan of like classic gothic horror as well, kind of that that silver age of, of horror cinema. So those two things are kind of blended together. So yeah, this this next script, this next film that we're making was originally titled Demonia Death Cult. 
but you know, recently conjuring the beyond sold again. So I said, you know, what about conjuring the cult? What if we did that again? That, you know, that, that worked. Cause for me, the movie still gets to be made and it kind of, and you know, not everyone would love their titles being changed. It once again, serendipitously just kind of feeds into my fantasy because right that happened to foreign films all the time right especially italian films you know they would make a movie and it would you know no joke be retitled terminator 2 you know <laughs> <That> troll <laughs> to yeah all these movies so yeah none of none of that stuff bugs me but yeah this next movie is officially conjuring the cult now cool yeah. Do you ever have people complain that like they, you know, they go to Amazon, they're looking for a Conjuring movie and they find yours oh. and they're like, this isn't Conjuring, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love it. And, you know, I was going to say that earlier, being personable, being nice and being understanding with your crew and, you know, business side of, of filmmaking is really important. I think doing that with the audience is important too. Hmm. Like, there are definitely there are way more people out there online that are trying to destroy my soul, you know, than there are people. Yeah, this this was pretty 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 fun movie, and it's pretty nice to them. I, I'm just suits to all of them, but yeah, a lot of people got a lot of complaints. Like I had this one girl actually yell at me and tell me through through email that you know. She convinced all of her friends to watch Conjuring the Beyond because she thought it was the new Conjuring movie and they were mad. And I was like, that, that's not my fault. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Watch the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. right, right. Educate yourself a little bit on what you're doing. Right. <laughs> Somebody went on the TV and said, this is not an official Conjuring movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people were really, really confused by it, which it's kind of fun. I, I don't know. It, it, yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Right. Yeah. And and so is it you've got kind of the same arrangement with Breaking Glass. They're kind of putting in some funding for Conjuring yeah. the Cult and they're going to they're set to distribute. It's kind of the same old pattern. Is there anything like anything new that you're trying to bring to it and kind of thinking forward about, you know, what the plan yeah. going is? With, with this one, we've you know, we've submitted everything to Washington Filmworks to work with the state. Uh huh on their small budget production incentive program because mm. we're also working with the Olympic College that's in Bremerton, Washington. We're actually mm. going to take the film there. They're going to help us out with some different you know, supplies and aspects. And we're going to have some film school students from the Olympic College be interns on this film for some extra credit. We're also working with the Masonic Lodge up that's up there. They're kind of chaptered vision. You know, the, the the whole city of Bremerton, I think, is really they seem to be really excited about showcasing their their city in the film, uh, which is for us. You know, we've we've worked with smaller towns, more rural communities in Oregon and Washington. Um, but Bremerton is actually a fairly decently sized city. So that's new for us. You know, we have some new producers that are on this film. You know, Brad Littlefield and BJ Mezik, who have been really, really great and just kind of helping, helping this film to be that much bigger looking than, than our last film. And you know, we're, we're always looking for more producers or, or potential investors who kind of want to get on board with the project. So mm -hmm. our website, people can always reach out and, you know, 
everything that's, you know, within my control, I'm always, you know, willing to negotiate a good deal right. for producers and financers. Right. Cool. Anything else? We're kind of at the hour mark here. So is there anything else that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about or cover? You know, all of our all of our films are on Tubi and Amazon. And yep, Tubi yep. is the way to go because it's free. So, you know, you can you can watch the films as long as you're with commercial breaks. So check out all of our films there. We do have one that's coming out. It's actually an anthology that we did this summer in which every every crew member got the opportunity to direct their own short, their own segment within this cool. anthology. I did one of them, and then I did the wraparound story, and they're all stories based on the boogeyman, and wraparound story is about a new psychologist who just gets a job at a small facility, and the, the psychiatrist is played by Alyssa Dowling, who is in, you know, just, she's in tons of movies. Mm-hmm. That should be fun. Definitely look out for that, because, you know, it's not only supporting us, us as a company, it's supporting a lot of these kind of, for some of them, first time directors, mm-hmm. you know, getting to, to step up into the director's chair and doing their own shorts. It should be. Re- now that's not released yet, right? Not quite released yet. It should be out I think, in the next month or two. It's called Beware the Boogeyman. So check out that trailer. You can tell also, you know, as I had alluded to, that came from the Winnie the Pooh mm-hmm. movie blowing up. Okay. Like, yep. Makes sense. Boogeyman's in the public domain. <laughs> yep. 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 Got it. And, and anything, any, any other like contact information or social media, anything like that you want to leave for people to follow you directly, get in touch, whatever. Yeah. You can follow us for Seventh Street Productions. We're on, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website is seventhstreetfilms.com. Okay. So you can awesome. check out, or, you know, shoot us an email. You know, we're always, We'll always respond. Even yeah, when yeah. it's people yelling, we'll always respond. Yeah, I was expecting a Conjuring movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you. I love hearing about your experiences. And like I said, like the sort of the the momentum that you have to just kind of keep going and keep putting movies out there and keep building your career. And uh, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun along the way. You've got a good crew to work with. It's all like really, really admirable and inspiring. So. I appreciate you sharing your, your story with us. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. That's all for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. As always, feel free to contact me directly with any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can find me on Twitter, or should I say X, or Instagram at DarkRoseColin, or you can email me at Colin at DarkRosePictures.com. That's Colin with one L, C-O-L-I-N, at DarkRosePictures.com. And by the way, darkrosepictures.com is my website for my feature and other projects. Its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with honesty and transparency of my own personal filmmaking journey. So if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. So check it out, darkrosepictures.com. 
Anyway, I want to thank Calvin McCarthy for an insightful and informative look into his filmmaking and distribution journey. I also want to thank Jeff Rymoot for his continuing and awesome work editing these episodes so I don't have to. I have so many great guests lined up for you in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. So please stay tuned. Keep getting those movies out there into the world. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.